who've just had a 10-second pause it may have felt long it may have felt unnerving not knowing what was going to happen that was just 10 seconds imagine waiting 400 years the Old Testament finishes with the prophet Malachi talking about God sending again someone like the prophet Elijah who would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then there was silence for 400 years. There's no record in in Scripture of anyone being inspired by the Holy Spirit, of anyone declaring about who God is and what God has done. There's just silence. And then all of a sudden, there's this wonderful activity of the Holy Spirit, and it's like, it's like a drum roll. It's like one of those drum rolls where all of the gospel writers do this sort of like unveiling of Jesus Christ, and they all do it in different ways, and all of them refer to the Old Testament. John takes us back to Genesis. Mark takes us to Isaiah and Malachi about the messenger coming before the Lord. And then we hear about John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah to declare the fact that he is the forerunner of the Lord himself. The great and terrible day of the Lord that Malachi spoke about is coming. The Lord is coming to his temple. And then a shock, I'm sure, for all of them, including John himself, he discovers that actually it's his own cousin Jesus from Galilee who turns up and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God, just reach out and touch it because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn your life around and believe the good news. All of the waiting that has happened, we've been looking at it, there's been hundreds and thousands of years. We, we read about in Genesis, God's perfect creation, paradise, Eden, and then the paradise lost, and then elements of paradise being partially restored in the kingdom of Israel, and then that all falling apart. And the prophets during that time, seeing it was all falling apart, they were declaring the fact that God was going to fulfill his promises. The kingdom was going to come in all of its fullness. And we understand the kingdom to be God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and therefore enjoying God's blessing. And so we're understanding as the story of history, the story of Scripture unfolds, we're seeing how God is at work. And then in this prophetic era, looking forward to the wonderful thing looking forward to the new king that God would send. And then Zechariah, the priest in the temple, he's, he's hoping and praying for a son. He's praying for a wife, even though he knows that physically it's impossible for him and his wife. And he, his life, in a way, his, his speechlessness after the angel speaks to him and chastises him for not believing is a, is a metaphor for the 400 years of silence. That he's not able to speak. It's like human beings have been made mute because the Holy Spirit has not been operating in them and through them. 
And then when Zacharias says his name is John, he writes it on the tablet and suddenly he's able to speak and he sings the wonderful song that Mark read for us. I just want to read the first part of it again from the paraphrase from the message. Zechariah cries out, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He came and set his people free. He set the power of salvation in the center of our lives in the very house of David, his servant, just as he promised long ago through the preaching of his holy prophets, deliverance from our enemies and every hateful hand, mercy to our fathers as he remembers to do what he said he'd do, what he swore to our father Abraham, a clean rescue from the enemy camp, so we can worship him without a care in the world, made holy before him as long as we live. And how has he done that? Through a wonderful work of redemption. Last week we looked at the prophet Isaiah, whose whole life was a prophetic symbol. And how Hosea, in obedience to God and devotion to his unfaithful wife, Gomer, he he pays this humiliating ransom price because Gomer has become enslaved to another man. And so he buys her back. He pays a price for 170 grams of silver and about 200 grams of barley. And he goes in humiliation and he pays the price. And he buys back what is already his. Why? Because he loves her and he wants to set her free. He wants to take her out of the place of enslavement and suffering and tears and brokenness that she's in. And so he obeys the voice of God. He remains devoted to his wife and he pays the price. And the same thing has happened to you and I. What scripture is saying to us is that we are Gomer. We are the unfaithful people of God and God himself in humiliation hung on a tree and he paid the price to buy us back. Why? Because he loves us and because he wants to set us free. And Jesus Christ is the one who has done all of this. The prophets wrestled with this, the whole Old Testament wrestled with this. How is God going to square the circle? God is a holy God and nothing impure can exist in his presence because he's a God of justice. And he hates sin because sin destroys lives. It destroys other people's lives and it destroys the lives of those who commit it. He's a God of justice. And so how was God, the God of justice, going to see justice done? And the penalty of sin is death. How are we going to live eternally with God if God is a God of holiness and justice? How is it going to happen? And the answer the New Testament tells us, what the gospel writers tell us, is that it's all about Jesus Christ. It's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, amazingly, is God's people. He's God's place. And he's also God himself, the king. So we wonder about how is God going to bring this reconciliation about? And the prophets wrestle with this. They wrestle with the fact that judgment is coming. Justice is coming. The launderer is coming with his soap. The launderer is coming with his mop and bucket. And yet the fact that there is hope. How is, how is God going to square the circle? 
And the answer is God himself is going to come and square the circle. God himself is going to come and he's going to sort it all out. You see, he's going to be God's people. So Paul, the apostle, puts it like this in Romans 5. For just as through the disobedience of one man, he means Adam, the many were made sinners, including us, so also through the the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Jesus Christ is the true Adam. And also he is the true Israel. Where Israel and Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. And so the New Testament has all sorts of pictures to describe this. The people were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. They were tempted by Satan and they failed. Jesus was tempted by Satan. He overcame. There were 12 tribes in Israel. Jesus chooses 12 apostles. Why? To show the fact that he is the new Israel and everything he's doing and everything he is is all about the new Israel. Jesus Christ is the true Adam and he is the true Israel. So today, we don't look for answers in Palestine. We don't look for them in Jerusalem. We don't look for them at the temple. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the people of God. He is the place where we meet God. And so the understanding in the Old Testament is the place where you meet God is the temple in Jerusalem. And when Jesus came in in the week before he died and he cleared out the temple and the people, the religious leaders said to him, who gave you authority to clear out the temple? And Jesus said, well, tear it down and I'll raise it up in three days. What was he saying? I'm the new temple. Forget about the building. Judgment is coming on the building. Judgment is coming on the people. There will be a new temple. There will be new life, eternal life. And the meeting place of God is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the people of God. Jesus Christ is the place where we meet God. He is the temple. He is the new temple. And so we have all those wonderful things and look and acts about Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of the temple. He is the place. You want to know how to meet God the Father? You meet him in one place, not in Jerusalem, not in the temple. You meet him in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is God himself. This wonderful meeting place. Jesus Christ is the people of God. Jesus Christ is the meeting place. Jesus Christ is God himself. You can see Jesus is doing absolutely everything. It's an entirely comprehensive picture of reconciliation and restoration. Jesus Christ represents human beings. He represents God. And he represents the place where they're going to meet again together. He does absolutely everything. So Jesus Christ is the new king. And we see that in his miracles. When the blind man calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The understanding was that the miracles would come, the restoration would come through a king in the line of David. Jesus Christ is not only biologically in the line of David, he is spiritually in the line of David. He is not only the son of David, he is the son of God. And how do we know that? Because he was dead and now he's alive. He has been raised to life. He was as dead as dead and now he's alive as alive can be. Jesus Christ is God 
He is the king, and he therefore brings God's blessing for those who are willing to recognize, to repent, and to believe the good news. As we saw in that first chapter of Genesis, that wonderful pattern in Genesis chapter one about it was morning, it was evening, the first day and the second day, up until the sixth day, and then we came to the seventh day and the pattern is broken. Why? Because the seventh day was never meant to have any end to it. The seventh day in the creation narrative of Genesis chapter one is meant to be open-ended. It doesn't have the same pattern. Why? Because you and I were created to live in the Sabbath rest of God forever. Creation was created to live in the presence of God forever and experience the rest of Sabbath. That's why it's the one commandment or the ten commandments. We say Jesus has already fulfilled the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is the rest of God because the rest of God is the blessing of God. If we're living under the blessing of God, we're living in the rest of God. That's why Jesus the King says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He doesn't just mean I'm, come, you get physical rest. It includes that. But he's saying, come and you will get rest. You will get spiritual rest, psychological rest, emotional rest. But most importantly, you will get, a, you'll get eternal rest because you will become a conqueror of death. So Paul says, death, where's your sting? Who's afraid of death anymore, Paul says. Why should we be afraid of death? Because there was a dead man and he's alive. Why should we fear death anymore? Because the consequence of death has been overcome. Sin has been overcome. Death has been overcome. Paul says, death, where's your sting? Paul says to death, where's your sting? Why should we be afraid of death anymore? Why should we be afraid? Because we, can, we know. We know from reading it. We know from experiencing the Holy Spirit in our lives the fact that eternal rest is ours. And the kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming. And while there's still any sin, there will also still be death. But actually, death has been overcome. So Paul says, death is where you're staying. We have overcome. We are overcomers. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And not only that, we're overcomers of sin. So there may be things that we're struggling with, wrestling with. And in fact, they are opportunities for us to grow and give glory to God. Imagine if we lived our lives that every time we come up against a temptation, we went, happy days. Happy days. Because this is not just a chance for me not to fall. This is a chance for me to get bigger and stronger. That's what it means to be a conqueror of sin. Where we're not wrestling all the time going, oh, you know, I'm always going to get tripped up with this. Actually, we're saying, you know what? In Jesus Christ, I am an overcomer. And you see that sin? Doesn't stand a chance. Why? Because even if I fall, I can ask for forgiveness. And I can say to the Lord, give me strength not to fall. Deliver me from temptation. And he'll answer that. And we will start to walk on the back of our potential sins to glory. And every time we see brokenness in this world, whether it's sin or sickness, even death itself, or hopeless situations, 
What, is, what does it mean when Jesus says, believe the good news? Yes, it means we know that Jesus Christ is God. He represents us as God's people and the meeting place. He's brought us back together. He's restored the kingdom of God on earth. What does that mean? It means every time you and I come up against a hopeless situation, we say, hopeless situation? Puh. There's no such thing as a hopeless situation. Why? Because God is the God of hope. God, God can restore heaven and earth. God can take a dead man and bring him back to life. God can do anything. God can take someone like Nigel Parker and turn him from a, a sinful, broken person into a saint of God. God can do anything. Because here's the thing. You are the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that you and I may become the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God. It's not something to get proud about because Jesus Christ has done it all. But are you stepping in to the reality of the fact that no matter what you come up against, we never say can't. We never say can't. We say, well, God can find a way. There's never a cul-de-sac. And I wonder if that word the prayer team had earlier on, I wonder if that's the word for every single one of us. That we are in a walled garden and it's a nice place to be. It's a lovely walled garden. It's very pretty. Reasonably spacious. There's a door. There's a lock. But the lock has a key in it. And there is a whole world to discover out there. All you and I have to do is open the door because the key is in the lock. So what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? What does it mean? Well, you go into your workplace or your family or your neighborhood, and there's broken relationships, and there's people who scoff Christianity, and there's injustice, and you see poverty arising out of it, and you see abuse arising out of it, and you see doubt. You see all sorts of things, and you step into that situation. We step into that situation, and we know the Lord is our righteousness, and I am the righteousness of God. And what does Jesus want me to do? He wants me to believe the good news. What does that mean? The kingdom of God is coming on earth. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So we declare, we declare healing where there's sickness. We declare life where there's death. We declare justice where there's injustice. Every environment we step into, we don't go, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? It's desperate and it's a hopeless situation. Everyone else is speaking that language. We don't speak that language. We have a different vocabulary. We have a different outlook. And the different vocabulary and outlook is that we step in and say, you know what, like Zachariah, I'm not sure how God's going to do it, but I believe he can. One of the things I love about Zachariah's song is that so much of it is in the past tense. So here's Zachariah. The angel has spoken to him. He's been struck dumb. His son is born. He names him John. He's able to shout praise to God. And he sings a song in which he says, God has already done it. He doesn't know about Jesus. John the Baptist is born. Jesus hasn't been born yet. And yet, 
Zachariah says, you know what? God has done it all. He has raised up a horn for us. In other words, he's raised up a strong king for us in the line of David. He's fulfilled his promise to Abram. And what was his promise to Abraham? That God would bless the whole world and he would bless them to a little nomad in the middle of nowhere called Abram. And Abram had no children and no hope, it seemed, of having children. But what did Abram do? He said, Lord, bring it on. I don't know how you're going to do it. I can't see how you're going to do it, but I believe you're going to do it. That's what it means to believe the good news. Jesus described it as this, that we thank God in advance for what he is going to do. So when we come up against something that looks like a brick wall, we, we don't respect the brick wall. We don't respect it at all. We, like Joshua outside Jericho, we say, well, God's going to do it. He's going to do it in, a, in his own special way. With Jericho, yeah, we're not going to put up ladders and we're, not gonna, we're actually going to walk around it and we're going to shout praise and we're going we're to blow trumpets. And God has a particular and unusual way of overcoming walls. So whatever walls you come up against, sickness, doubt, people sneering in the Christian faith, even death itself. Whatever wall you come up against, and you come into environments where people are basically standing around going, it's a big wall. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of sickness. There's a lot of sin. We don't stand with people looking at the wall because we'll just make the wall bigger like everybody else. We actually say, actually, there are representatives of God on earth today. There are those who are actually the righteousness of God, who represent Jesus Christ today on earth, and actually, I am one of them. And so, we're going to declare healing in this situation of sickness. We're going to proclaim hope in what seems like a hopeless situation. Because with God, there is always a way out. There is always a way over, or there is always a way through. The question is, do you believe it? See, here's the phrase that's been coming back to me again and again over this week. What are you waiting for? I believe he's saying it to me. I believe he's saying it to you. I believe he's saying it to us as a church. What are you waiting for? It's the picture I didn't know was coming today of a wooden door and a wall with a mortise lock and a key. And God wants the blessing of God's Holy Spirit to break out into Bangor and beyond. He wants it to break out into your workplace, into your family, into your neighborhood, into your extended family. In every environment, you are a carrier of the kingdom of God and you're stepping into it as one who has been forgiven. You're set free and you step in as a purveyor of hope into that situation. When everyone is putting their heads down and saying it's a desperate situation, you say there is no such thing as a desperate situation. Why? Because Jesus Christ has done it all. Because there was a dead man who is now alive and will live forevermore. And I don't know how God will do it. I just trust that if we pray, he will.
What are the walls in your life? What are the things that are holding you back? What are the things that God wants you to move through into an expansive place of the kingdom of God in greater fullness? I think the Lord is saying to you and saying to me and saying to us today, there is a key in the door. It's not just a wall, there's a door. And hey, it's got a key in it. And the key is Jesus Christ. Shall we pray?